Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times, your home for narrative travel writing with heart. I'm Nathan Thomas, and alongside my co-host Jennifer Roberts, we take you behind the scenes of some of our most popular travel stories, get you to meet travel writers, and help you discover how you can share your own travel stories with the world. And welcome back to the Travel Writing Podcast by Intrepid Times. Today, I'm here with Mary Novakovich, who has been a journalist for more than 30 years and has written for publications such as The Guardian, The Times, The Telegraph, uh, and many more. <laughs> She's written, updated, and edited numerous guidebooks and has a particular interest in France, Italy, and Eastern Europe. In 2022, she published her travel memoir, My Family and Other Enemies, Life and Travels in Croatia's Hinterland, which won the 2023 British Guild of Travel Writers Adele Evans Award for Best Travel Narrative Book, and it was also shortlisted for the 2023 Stanford Travel Book of the Year. Uh, that book will be the focus of our conversation today. Um, but I'm also really excited to talk about Mary's overall experience in travel writing. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Mary. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So as I mentioned in the intro, uh, you've been a journalist for many years now, uh, writing both short and long form articles for various publications. And I think there are a lot of people in the travel writing space who start out writing stories or articles and have the goal of eventually writing a travel book. I wonder if you could quickly walk us through how you built up to making that leap from writing articles to writing a book, and also perhaps how that experience of writing a book-length piece differed from your previous writing projects. Yes, of course. Well, I um, <clears throat> started actually travel writing itself uh, about 1999. I was doing a lot of regular work for a a newspaper, The Independent on Sunday, and uh, and the travel editor and I would always have chats because you know talk about travel, and he was fascinated by my uh, by my background because my parents were my family's ethnic Serbs but from Croatia, and he travelled there and he, and he said you know you, you must write for me why don't you write for me and I said yeah all right <laughs> certainly do that, and it just slowly slowly grew from there um, combining travel writing with other other forms of journalism and but the travel side of things was taking over really quite soon after that and the book that I published last year has actually been in the making since 2009 because it was that point I had um I'd done a road trip with my mother that formed uh, the heart of the the book and I started writing it at that time and then realized I didn't really have enough um to turn it into a, a full-length travelogue and it sat on the back burner for about 10 years. And, uh, but in the meantime, I, you know, just kept on traveling and traveling, but I really wanted to revisit that story. I didn't want to let that be untold. And it was only after meeting my agent at a party um, who we were talking about my travels. And by that point, I'd accumulated quite a few travels in, in my parents' region of Croatia, uh, which is called Lika. And he said, well, you've actually got a book, a book here. And I said, yeah, I think you're right. So we then knocked up a, a proposal and and like practically everybody else during lockdown, during COVID, I wrote a book. Um, but the actual process of that, I'd taken the first, say, 25,000 words I'd written back in 2009 
and repurposed that, rejigged it, and then wrote everything around that. Um, and I only had actually a three-month deadline to finish the book because during COVID, publishing houses, they had very, you know, the, the schedules were all over the place and they had fewer staff and, and they had only so much editorial capacity. And they had one tiny window for me to get the production done, to, to, to get the book done and to get it published. And I thought, well, okay, I'm a journalist. And what I do best is I meet deadlines. If I don't have a deadline, then I completely rubbish. And it really focuses your mind when you've got to write essentially 50,000 words in three months in addition to doing all of my other regular work, which was quite hard. But the thing that I found I loved about writing the book is the complete liberation of not having a template, not having a, a word count. I mean, I knew I can go up to like 80,000 words if I wanted to, but I had the whole structure, everything was completely down to me. And I just reveled in that. I absolutely loved it. It wasn't the case of having to follow somebody else's template or the different formats you have in, in newspaper and magazine features. And, um, and I really, really love that. I want to do another one now. Well, we definitely hope to see another one from you. Uh, that'd be great. But yeah, you do. You mentioned this this part about you and your mother traveling in Lika, uh, which does. It really forms, you know, a big chunk of the book. And, you know, you start actually before that where you have this moment when you're a child and you go to Croatia. And then there are plenty of moments, you know, after that trip with your mother. I wonder, you know, all of these, they're kind of spread out over, you know, a lot of years, and you kind of started thinking about this in 2009 and, you know, that's 10 years, but you're also having to think back, you know, many, many years. What was that process like of trying to thread all of these different moments together into a cohesive narrative that was going to make sense as a book? Yes, well, that was, um, I think I had the advantage that the, as you said, that the core of the book, The Road Trip with My Mother, um, I had written that immediately after I came back in 2009. And I had very, very detailed notes because throughout that whole trip, I'd spend a good chunk of every single day writing everything out, absolutely everything, all the conversations and every, all the notes. I took loads of photos. Um, and so I was able to write that pretty much within about five months of me coming home. And uh, and then I, that's the piece of the work I sat on for 10 years. Um, the, the, other, the other ones, because they were they were pretty much trips to Lika off the back of other travel trips I was doing in the region, I always had very, very you know, copious notes, very detailed notes about what I was doing anyway. And again, loads and loads of photos. Brilliant for things like timestamps, date stamps, and 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 just tiny details that you that you forget. And um, so luckily I'd, I'd had all of those notes. The only thing I obviously didn't have notes for was when I was first, um, my first trip to Yugoslavia in 1976 when I was 11 and that's purely from my from my memory and I mean that section actually has kind of a different feel to it right it's much more it definitely feels more like memory right you definitely can tell that it's something you're reflecting on and thinking about you know from the perspective of as you know an adult who had that experience a long time ago um and I think that that actually happens a lot with travel writers where they they had an experience a while ago and they either didn't take notes or they forgot to take notes or, you know, whatever. And they're having to dig into their memory. And I liked that part of your book because it showed that you can actually do that without having to, you know, lie about it. You know, you maybe didn't include every single thing that happened. You're definitely making it clear that this is coming from my memory as an 11 year old child. Like there's probably things missing. 
Did you find that it was difficult to kind of dive into those memories and try to remember what had happened? In a way, um, I mean, it would also help that I happened to have written just before that uh, a feature for The Telegraph, which was, um, there was a, again, a, a feature that used to run called um, something like The Holiday That Made Me or something like that. And I had done that summer in 76, which I had a different different angle to. So writing that, it um, it got my memories going back. And also I had things like, you know, when I, when I mentioned that my cousins would remind me of what an absolute little horrible child I was at the time, because <laughs> I see my cousins all the time when I when I go to visit them in Serbia. And, uh, and so I had people saying, oh, do you remember when you did this? I said, yes, thank you very much. And so I had those prompts, which were really, really helpful. And and I had, because it was such, and I had a, such an indelible mark in my brain that whole summer, it really did, somebody, I mean, so many impressions, I mean, a lot of them now are more impressionistic than anything else, but you just don't forget some of these things. They 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 made such an impression on my, on my brain. And I also didn't realize at the time just how much that had an effect on me that summer. Because, you know, parents would ship the kids off to the, the old country in the summer. That was quite a common thing. But with, with an awful lot of hindsight and visiting the region again and again and again, it just really showed how, um, how much I cherished that summer, even though it was really hard work to begin with. You mentioned, you know, your cousins, your family. I mean, essentially, the book revolves around you know, visits to see your extended family. Uh, at one point you travel with your mother, sometimes you travel with with your husband, Adam. Um, but in the book, I mean, you're kind of on this quest, right, to track down as much information about your family and your ancestors as possible. And so what that means is that you spend a lot of time talking about members of your family um, and using them to, to convey the culture of Croatia. Um, you know, this is somewhat different from how travel writers normally approach a place, uh, which is often through interactions with strangers as opposed to, you know, family and friends. Um, and when writing about interactions with strangers, you know, there are quite a few, you know, ethical issues to think about, such as, you know, whether to use their name, you know, should you tell them you're a journalist? Should you get their permission to re reveal certain information? When you're writing about interactions with family and friends, I imagine that process can be quite different. And I want to ask you, I mean, would you say that the ethical considerations there are more or less complex when thinking about, you know, what and how to write about them? Well, yes, I, th I think so. Um, I, a, a lot of people who I was, I was writing about, they've since died. And, and of course they have their family, my cousins and, and family friends who um, they, might see the book, they might have enough English to read it because it hasn't been translated yet into Croatian, which is a bit of a pity. Um, but uh, but I I was fully conscious of how I portrayed these people. Um, I wanted uh, to show as much compassion and as much balance as possible and not to use their stories in a very flippant way. I, I Because a lot of them are, they're, they're very, very Oh, they could be very traumatic, especially um, stories about the Second World War and then the 90s war. And I fully kept in mind if they if I were to see, you know, having a chat with these people and they they knew what I'd written and they would be absolutely appalled at it or angry with me. And I was fully, fully aware thinking you're not whitewashing anything here, but you have to be scrupulously fair as to how you're portraying these people. 
And because I didn't go around and ask everybody's permission to do that. And uh, but the only person I have to say who I, as you know, having, having read the book is my mother doesn't come across very well and neither do I in, in our relations um, in that particular chapter because we had a nightmarish time and I love my mother to bits, but she was a nightmare at the time. <laughs> and um, the thing is now she's since developed full-blown dementia. So she'll never be able to read the book. So there is a bit of a blessing in that. Um, she always wanted me to write this book and, and I did tell her I wrote it. And that's one of those things where, and everybody else who's read it, who knows my mother, they'll go, mm, okay, yeah, that's that's Yelka. That's Mary's mother. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Has anyone in your family read the book? I'm curious about their, their reactions to it. Yes, yes, quite a few of them have actually. Um, and uh, they all loved it. I haven't heard anyone say anything negative. Also, a few family members have come out of the woodwork since the book came out. I found some um, old family friends and, and, and cousins who I, 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 never, I never met. And, uh, and they, were all, they were all thrilled a bit because I was writing about our region and nobody knows about Lika. It, it's, um, it's, not, you know, it's the largest region in Croatia. It's the least populated and and it's the least known, apart from uh, the Plipitsa Lakes National Park and the birthplace of Nikola Tesla. Apart from that, no one knows a thing. So having an entire book devoted to their region, everyone was just so happy to see it. And it struck me, you know, throughout the whole book, I mean, it's, it's so fun because you have these moments where you kind of get off the beaten track. I think there's a moment where you're you see a sign for honey, I believe, and you kind of make a turn and you go to this house to try to buy honey. And the people are like, oh, no, we, we don't have any honey. Sorry, we just forgot to take the sign down. Uh, and they kind of ask your name like, oh, we know your family. Um, and this happens, you know, a lot <laughs> while you're traveling. Everybody just seems to know everybody. And that seems like such a special part of this region where everything feels connected, which is kind of strange, right? Because this region has experienced conflicts, a lot of movement, uh, migration, immigration, I mean, how have they managed to maintain this kind of connection between everybody with all of that? Well, it's getting harder because there are fewer people. Um, they've had um, depopulation now for some time. And uh, so there are there are fewer people. And um, But you end up finding people, you know, the whole diaspora, people then find you. I've had a lot of people send me messages saying, oh, I'm one of these, uh, I'm a Novakovich from, from your village. I mean, are we related? It's like, actually, no, we're not. <laughs> um, but I think anyone any in any sort of rural um, environment, everyone will know each other unless they are an absolute hermit and they don't want to know anybody. It's just the nature of rural society that you um, everyone knows of each other, everyone helps each other, everyone is, is aware of each other because there are so few of you. And yeah, mentioning, you know, this kind of backstory of, you know, conflict and war, uh, which, you know, features pretty, pretty heavily in the book. I mean, you have to mention it. Um, there's no way to avoid mentioning it. And in that thread, you know, there are, you know, you include quite a few difficult stories. Uh, there's this heart-wrenching story about, uh, I believe it's your great-grandmother, uh, who was murdered by the Ustasi. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And then, you know, you then balance those really difficult stories with, you know, more lighthearted discussions about, you know, the food, the landscapes, the hospitality of Lika, um, which speaks, I think, a lot to Croatia's culture in general, um, because it has to find this balance between a really violent, difficult past 
and a present that's doing its best to, to aim toward, you know, peace and modernity. I'm curious about, you know, in your process of writing the book, you know, how difficult was it for you to find that balance in a way that would get across Croatia's culture while also giving the right amount of weight to that complicated history? It took an awful lot of thought. Um, I also did a lot of research as, and read as much as I could. And unfortunately, there isn't that much written um, apart from the actual war, you know, the 90s war. It's, I tried to get a sense of light and shade, but the context was everything in this story. And, and I wanted to give people as much background as possible without having a, a history dump now and again. And I've read enough travel logs where you get to the history bit and you think, okay, you know, can you just sort of, we, we've lost the, the thread of the story here, we've lost the, the, the pace. And I tried to keep that all in mind while giving everything the right sort of weight. So when we get from something which is uh, quite a heavy duty, a heavy story, and then getting onto something else which shows the um, innate friendliness of, of, of the next people I was talking to and and uh, and their approach to life and and how family and food and things like that are so important to them. And it was it was hard work, but it was I really relished the challenge because. As I said, not many people really know much about the region and what they had gone through um, when the war was, was was going on. Attention very quickly shifted to Bosnia when that started to uh, implode in 1992. So a lot of people in, in Croatia, their stories never really got told. And uh, people still don't really know a lot about, about that side of the history, apart from a few obvious things. You know, they'll mention how you know Dubrovnik was bombed, for example, and 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 things like that. But so much of of the society has changed enormously, and I was I was really keen that people knew much more so than oh we're just going to this beautiful place, giving them much more of a background as to what they were looking at and why it was like that. You have this interesting moment in the book where I believe it's the second time you go back to visit. Uh, the pit where your great-grandmother was murdered. And at the same time, I believe it's the same day, there's another event happening to kind of honor uh, 12 young girls who were also murdered around the same time. The pit kind of feels like it's been kind of covered over. There's not much marking it, but there's this huge event for the girls. And I wonder, it made me think about, you know, is Croatia, are the people of Croatia trying to remember their history or are there parts that they're trying to symbolically bury like this pit they're trying to cover it over they don't want to think about it you know but that moment with the this event honoring the girls you know it feels like they're still trying to hold on to something you know what's the sense like when you're there about how they're trying to honor or remember or forget their own history Yes, occasion uh, it's, a, it's a sense of um, forgetting and also revising. There's a lot of um, revisionism going on in, in Croatia and in Serbia. And the the thing about the um, the commemoration, it was the anniversary of the murder of those twelve girls um, in the fields, and and with this enormous stone sculpture that was um, that was built in the fifties when they used to, that was the time they they built a lot of sculptures around the country to commemorate victims of the war. And because that would have been a Serbian group of girls who have been who've been murdered, and all the diaspora um, would come in, and all the re the relations would come in and keep the spirit of those girls alive. Because it's the Ustasha 
was such a, a vile part of the of creation's history. Um, they really were Croatia's Nazis. And people should not be allowed to forget that side of the history. A lot of Croatian ultra-nationalists, uh, as same thing with neo-Nazis, they like to celebrate these people. And um, and that's one of those things that we always have to fight. We always, we, we can't let people have white, either whitewash that history nor celebrate it. You just have to acknowledge it and know about it and learn from it. And um, people keep on saying never again, unfortunately, in the 90s, it did happen. And and that is another thing that Croatia and Serbia, I mean, Serbs, a lot of the huge numbers of Serbs who deny um, Srebrenica, you know, the murder of nearly 8,000 men and, and boys um, in Bosnia. And people, I have absolutely no patience with any, any genocide deniers, anyone who tries to, to rewrite or to whitewash our very, very complicated and very, very bloody history. And one of the reasons why the 90s was such a terrible period was that after the Second World War, Tito, who essentially clapped down on anything vaguely resembling nationalism. So a lot of those, unlike in, say, in South Africa, where they had the, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, nothing happened like that in Croatia and Serbia and ex-Yugoslavia at all. So a lot of these wounds just had very, very thin scar tissue over them, and uh, but never really healed. And then in the 90s, it was so much easier to stoke fear and hatred and nationalism again, because they never really acknowledged what had happened before. And similarly, what's happened in the 90s, people are still not really acknowledging it. And I find that as, as someone who is a Serb, I detest the fact there's a certain number of my fellow Serbs who are doing exactly what a certain number of Croats are doing and that either saying, oh, we didn't do that, or oh, they deserved it, or or whatever. And um, and that's one thing that I'm I'm constantly, constantly fighting. I wonder, and I think the answer is probably obvious, but I wonder if that was part of your motivation in writing the book was to bring some, I don't think it's ever going to be objective, but you know, some kind of objective clarity to what happened, not necessarily who was responsible, but just, you know, the facts on the ground, you know, who was involved. Um, what events happened? How were people affected? Um, you know, the I think the driving force behind your book, right, is about your family and this quest to, to discover more about them. But, you know, this kind of undertone of let's clarify some things about the history here for people. Did that factor into how you thought about writing the book? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I, the amount of research I had done beforehand to make certain I had every, all of my facts completely right. So I didn't get, I didn't add any inaccuracies to the history because you can find that enough on, on the internet. Um, but one thing that my, when my editor was was going through my manuscript and he put a really wonderful comment um, on one part of it after explaining sort of certain part of the history. And he said it was a really balanced and compassionate and accessible telling of that history. And, and I was just jumping for joy when I read that because I thought that's exactly what I set out to do and it, and it obviously worked. And it's it's very good to to remind people of, of parts of history because it's you know as we as we know now you know there's so many so many things going on around the world and, and a lot of people have misconceptions about what is actually happening so if I do my my own small part in enlightening people then um, then I'm quite pleased about that. 
Yeah, I love the word you use, you know, accessible, um, because I think that's actually one of the beautiful things about travel writing specifically, you know, more so than, you know, history writing, where travel writing often, almost always will include some bit of history. But I feel like travel writing makes it more accessible because it's telling it through, you know, a storytelling lens, telling it through the experiences of people on the ground who have been through it. Um, through experiencing how a place looks and feels now that it's been through that history. I don't know, I find that to be a really beautiful part of travel writing. Another thing that I wanted to ask about is, you know, jumping back a little bit into to how you speak about your, your mother, but also just about how you speak about your travel companions. I think a lot of travel writers tend to travel with other people, but they they don't tend to make those people, you know, a kind of a central focus of the narrative. And you definitely do. Your mother is a very bold part of the book. Uh, your husband, Adam, features quite heavily in the book. Um, you don't shy away from including them and their perspectives and how they're experiencing Croatia and Lika specifically. This ends up being really important because, you know, it seems to shape the way that you experienced Croatia. I'm sure that, you know, as a as a travel journalist, you've traveled extensively by yourself to to a lot of different places. And I just wonder what your thoughts are as far as choosing who to travel with, you know, whether you should travel alone. Does that depend on where you're going and what your goals are? So actually, I haven't spent as much time traveling alone as a lot of other travel writers. I've spent a lot of time traveling with my husband, actually, because we make a really, make a really, really good pair. And he's... He's so supportive and helpful in so many ways. But I also love getting somebody else's perspective, especially with something that, like, for example, with, with, with Croatia and Serbia and all the other parts of the Balkans that we go to regularly. And some of it can be a little bit of an acquired taste. And I am I'm quite subjective about it, obviously. And, uh, and it's good having somebody else's opinion. And just to see, is it is, is it just me or is it is this really good? I said, actually, it is really great. And it's and it's great in, in sharing my enjoyment of a place and introducing people who might not have known anything about it and and watching them fall in love with it as well, which which I was really pleased with. My husband fell in love with Lika and um and just having so many joyous times there. I mean, as far as traveling on my own now, um I mean I, I don't I haven't done a trip on my own. There hasn't been part of like a group of other journalists traveling together. Gosh, for a long time. So I, I'm not one of these. I'm not one of these intrepid backpackers who go off and you know travel on their own. I'm not like Dervla Murphy, um, who was another writer I've always looked up to. And I couldn't imagine the sort of travels that she did. You know, going off on a bicycle and, and, and cycling to India. So I just admire people like that so much. That hasn't been my history. Actually, I think that's really nice for people to hear everybody who may be listening is you know I think we can often get the sense that travel writers have to be kind of these intrepid backpackers like you're saying you know they have to be these kinds of people who just go off on their own for months at a time and are happy doing that and like you're saying that's not always the case you know to be a travel writer you don't have to be that kind of person I'm curious as to whether you know thinking about the really different experiences you had traveling with your mother and traveling with your husband was there ever a time where you felt like traveling with that specific person or maybe in a specific moment where their perspective caused you to change the way you saw something or your opinion about something and that maybe possibly impacted the way that you wrote the book? Not to tell really. Um, I mean, it was interesting with my mother. Um, a few times she would she would tell me stories about people that we'd seen after, after the event 
rather than than having deep you know heavy conversations and which which actually was very 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 useful very helpful for me because you were saying earlier on you don't really want to sort of barge in there with a journalist hat on and start asking questions and and having her helping me collect some of the stories was really extremely useful. Um, and uh, unlike my husband who <laughs> has a handful of you know words in Serbian and Croatian, he does try though, bless him. Um, but, uh, but I had to do the, the opposite. I had to do the interpreting for him. Yeah, I think, as I said, I think with, with my mother um, adding a bit of her own background and of the other people and adding things like, you know, what sharing stories of what life was like and, and the hardships and, and the realities of, of especially enduring wartime, um, you know, when in Yugoslavia in 1941, especially in Lika, there were like, there were four enemies that they were battling at the time. Yeah, I think, you know, what I hear you saying is, you know, you're trying to make the history accessible for people, but in order for you to do that, you know, your mother also had to help make the history accessible to you. So yeah, I think that that's really important in the case of, you know, traveling with other people, you know, are they helping you or hindering you? Um, I want to wrap up with uh, one more question, because, you know, I was looking a little bit at the other kind of writing you do, you know, for, for The Guardian, for The Independent, um, for other publications um, outside of your, your book, of course. And, you know, you do write a lot of pieces that, you know, to put them into a category, you know, people might call listicles, um, you know, the top things to see, you know, what to do here, um, things like that. And I think I think many travel writers, you know, especially those just starting out, feel like they need to start out writing those kinds of pieces because they tend to be the most accessible to to people who are just kind of getting their foot in the door. But then they often get kind of stuck doing that. At least it's kind of what we heard from our community. And I wanted to ask you, because you clearly have, you know, a foot in many different doors. <laughs> uh, you definitely haven't gotten stuck in one type of travel writing. But how have you continued to cultivate the kind of creativity needed for narrative travel writing, you know, while also writing these kinds of, you know, kind of factual listicle pieces? Well, the two go hand in hand. Um, I, I mean, listicles are they're financially vital because you can't physically afford to go on every single trip and then write about it. <laughs> you need to make as much money as you can from one particular trip. And listicles are brilliant for that because you can accumulate a lot of knowledge gained over several trips and uh, and then repurpose it for different publications, different angles, different, different places. I write a lot about Croatia and that keeps on feeding itself because an editor will see something I've written for CNN, for example, and go, oh, I saw that. Would you, you know, could you do something like that for us? And they go, well, I'll find a different angle, obviously. But if I hadn't actually done the trips and then done a narrative feature off the back of that, then I wouldn't have all that background information to do the listicles. So it's a, it's a, it's a not a vicious circle, it's a nice circle, actually. They sort of feed each other and that's what keeps these going. As far as um, newer writers um, breaking into certain publications, you know, all, all these service pieces, publications have these spaces that need to be filled. And it's a very good way of, of getting into it because they're not as easy as people might think they are. And they do require a lot of research to write something like an, an 80 word piece. A strange amount of a huge amount of research often goes into that just so you can write 80 perfectly accurate words about a place. That's really good to know. Um, and I love the way you describe that, you know, nice circle, <laughs> uh, the way that narrative and uh, you know, kind of factual listicle writing feeds on each other. Do you find that the narrative usually comes after the factual listicle stuff or the other way around? Uh, no idea. I mean, it, it's it's all over the place. Sometimes I'll come back from uh, 
uh, a trip where I've um, I'll filed a piece immediately, and because uh, it's a topical, you know, or, or a seasonal story, and I will have filed like fifteen hundred words and whatever, and that's brilliant. And then an editor will say, "Oh, could you do a, a roundup for this, that, and the other?" I go, "Oh, funny, I can just I know just a place I can add to my other list of, of places." Yeah, it it all seems to to dovetail nicely. When the more I the more I travel, the more I can then write about the same places, but in different ways. Before we wrap up, can you tell people where they can find your book if they want to pick it up? Yes, of course. Well, it's available in the U.S. You can get it in Barnes and Noble. You can get it in um, you know, chapters. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a photo of my book in a in a in an independent bookshop in Oregon, which was nice to see. And uh, Amazon, obviously. And just go online and, and you'll you'll find, you know, if, if you have, especially if you have a favorite independent bookshop, then, then please go and order it from there. And in, yeah, in Canada as well, Canadian Amazon, pretty much every chain of bookshops in the UK, Waterstones, WH Smith, Foils, Blackwells, and again, all, all, all the indies. So it's always good to support, to support the indies. Um, yeah. And I will make sure to, to put a link to the book um, with the podcast, just in case people want uh, easy access. Um, and thank you so much, Mary. This has been such a lovely conversation, uh, hearing about your book and all your travels and your travel writing. Um, thank you so much for making time for us. It's been lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. And don't forget to check out our new travel stories published weekly on IntrepidTimes.com. See you next time. Yeah.